In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see all of you here today. You should get extra points for being here on holiday weekend. Thanks be to God. Uh, a friend of mine, his name is David Zoll. He just produced a book, a writ, wrote a book that was recently released. Uh, and the title, that, title of that book is called Seculosity. Now, I haven't read it yet. It's on my summer reading list. Uh, but you might be able to hear in the title that uh, he has com- made a, he's made up a word combined from two words. Seculosity. He's taken the word secular and religiosity. Secular religiosity. So the basic premise of the book, uh, which has in fact received rave reviews from all corners, uh, the basic premise is that America is more religious now than ever. While traditional religious devotion has obviously declined, we have not abandoned religion, says Zoll, uh, but we have replaced traditional religion with many surrogate religions. Uh, we, that is because we are ever in search of being enough. It's, that's, that is a longing that will never leave the human heart. We are ever in search of being, uni- uh, being enough, and so we will seek it out, seek out enoughness religiously, but through secular things. If, re- if traditional religion is not a part of our lives, through parenting, through sports, through food, through exercise, through finances, uh, on and on we, we could go. Zoll says, our religious crisis today is not that religion is in decline, but that we are more religious than ever and about too many things. We are almost never not in church. We may be sleeping in on Sunday mornings in greater numbers, but we have never been more pious. As an illustration, what I think he says is absolutely true, and we have seen that recently, haven't we, in the recent college admission scandals. Uh, the guilty parents oh, had paid obscene amounts of money under the table so that their children could go to a top-tier university. I was so flattered to see my alma mater on the list uh, of those um, And I wondered how much my parents paid uh, to get in there. Uh, So this this cheating, uh, the system was maybe in their minds justified as, you know, that we're going to give our children the best opportunity at at any cost. But can we just agree that this is really, I mean, the real motivation is about impressing the parents, friends, and associates. Um, Maybe outdoing the parents, friends, and associates. And if you cannot see that as a secular expression of a religious impulse, then you're not paying attention, right? It is uh, the idea that I will be enough, I will be made whole if people see me as a successful parent. Or if I can look in the mirror and see myself as a successful parent. And that's just one way, isn't it, out of millions that we fill in that blank. I will be enough, I will be successful if, fill in the blank. I'll be enough. I'll be uh, made whole if I am more successful than my brother, right? If only in the eyes of my parents. Uh, I will uh, be enough. I will be made whole if I never get caught, 
if I've got the most cutting-edge technology, if I am vegan, or at least if everyone thinks that I am, uh, if I am happy with my love life, if I have got my health, if I am socially and politically progressive or conservative, take your pick. Now, David Zoll's premise is that we think these things will save us, but in the end, they crush us. So, for example, I maybe you've heard somebody say this before. I followed everything that that parenting book said, and my kid is still throwing tantrums, while the other kids in the playgroup seem so respectful. It's it's crushing. I haven't eaten a gram of trans fat in 10 years, and yet the doctor still says I have 90% blockage. It's all, in a sense, about control, and ultimately our lack thereof. So I bring all this up to talk about the man, the paralyzed man, in our gospel passage. Now, our translation calls the pool uh, where he was Bethzatha. But that's, a, that's actually a strange, it's a strange translation. It's most commonly called Bethesda. You've probably heard that before. So that's what I'm going to call it uh, in this sermon, Bethesda. Bethesda was actually two pools, and uh, they were used for washing sheep before the sheep were ushered through the sheep gate into the temple in order to be sacrificed uh, in the services. And the, Bethesda was actually two pools. They had five porches uh, around them. So it actually four around them on any sides and one in between the two. And these porches were filled with people, uh, people that our text calls invalids. They were those who could not see or they could not walk or they had some other infirmity. And they were there because there was this common belief that on occasion an angel would stir up the waters of the pool. And whoever got into the water first, when the angel stirred up the waters, that person would be healed. Now, it's, it's more likely that the pool was connected to a spring, and when the spring would churn more vigorously, there, there were some minerals that had medicinal properties, something like that. But it just must have been a really sad scene, a pitiable scene even, a scene of immense suffering of multitudes with all sorts of maladies and disabilities, all watching for just the slightest movement of the water and desperate for a hope to get into the water first. I mean, you can imagine how tragic it would have been if if the water starts stirring and people are just throwing themselves, people who can't walk or move on their own are throwing themselves into the water. It would be a really dangerous Scene, But this is the sort of scene, if you think about it, that, that we might expect Jesus to walk into, right? It's a scene of uh, just, just full of people who are on the fringe of society. It's a scene full of people who are in need, people who are desperate. We might also expect, if we're paying attention, that Jesus d- walks in there on the Sabbath, I don't know, is it just me, or does it seem like Jesus rests for six days and does all his work on the Sabbath? He's always getting into trouble on the Sabbath, right? And, uh, and it's particularly important in this scene, and we'll kind of touch on that towards the end. But there are, so there's some things we might expect about this scene, that Jesus walks into this scene of, 
needy people on the Sabbath, but there's just something odd about it as well. Normally, when Jesus walks into a crowd, everybody is crowding around Jesus. They want, everybody wants Jesus to heal them, but not here. Here, Jesus hardly even garners their notice. When I say, say hardly, it doesn't seem like he garners their notice at all, right? And why is that? I think it's because they're all looking at the pool. Everybody's fixed on the pool because that's what's going to save them. That's what's going to make them whole. That's what's going to give them the life they desire. And yet so far, for every single invalid who is there at the porches by the pool of Bethesda, they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting because the pool's promised salvation has eluded them. They are waiting for their moment. They're waiting for a sort of lottery salvation. That's why I brought that book up earlier, Seculosity, because we're all gazing at something that we think is going to save us, right? And maybe lots of somethings that we think are going to save us. And maybe it's some, one of the things that I, the secular things I mentioned earlier, food, romance, exercise, finances. Uh, but, you know, the things that we're gazing at could actually also be traditionally religious. Maybe we're looking to our perfect church attendance record. Not as the fruit of our faith, but as the thing we think God will look with us upon for favor. Maybe we're looking upon our uh, good deeds, our acts of service, not as the fruit of our faith, but as the thing which is going to win us God's favor. And whatever, whatever it is, the call of this passage is to lift our gaze from the pool's reflection into the face of the Messiah, in the face of our Savior Jesus. Now Jesus approaches this man. He has been paralyzed or handicapped in some way for 38 years. It's a long time to hold out hope for the stirring of a pool. He's gone gray. His life has passed him by in the years that he's been waiting and waiting. It reminds me of the, the, the existential play, right? Waiting for a Godot. It's just never coming. Never coming. And yet here he remains, gazing at the pool, hoping against all reason and all experience that this time, this time something's going to be different. This time, someone's going to be there to pick him up and take him to the pool before anybody else has a chance to get there. I'd say the odds are pretty long on that one, but at least in his mind, is there any other hope? But then, hope walks up to him. The Lord and author of life seeks him out. It's important, I think, significant, to note that the man was not looking for Jesus. He was not crying out for Jesus as others do in other passages, and yet Jesus sought him, like we just sang, sought him as a stranger. Jesus meets him right where he is. He doesn't require him to move a muscle. He doesn't require him or wait for anyone else to bring the man to him. Jesus just comes to him. And we're not told why. Jesus approaches this man out of the multitudes. Surely there have 
uh, been many like this man who have been there a long time at Bethesda. But whatever the sovereign reason of Jesus to approach this man, Jesus asks him an extraordinary question. He says, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? And that sounds, doesn't it, like a fairly obvious question. And we expect the man to blurt out with an unqualified, yes! But his eyes are still fixed upon the pool. Do you want to be made well? Well, gosh, you know, I have nobody to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. That's not exactly what I asked. I mean, he's been fixed on the pool for so long, he can't imagine what Jesus is offering him. You expect Jesus to grab him and say, I didn't ask you who's going to get you to the pool, man. I asked you if you want to be made well. In fact, it makes, makes you wonder if he really does want to be healed. Has his identity become wrapped up in his paralysis? Has he come to understand himself as one who will never get the help that he needs? Has his paralysis become his comfort zone? What will his life look like? What will, what will his life look like if he actually makes it into the pool 38 years later? Do you want to be made well? Perhaps the emphasis on the question is not do you want to be made well, but do you want to be made well. If Jesus were to ask you that question, what would he be talking about? And where would the emphasis be? Do you want to be made well? You know, I've drilled down on this passage this week and on how we are to apply it, and I think more and more that it's about what we are looking to to save us and what we wrap our identities in. Do you want to be made well? Gaze no longer at the pools of seculosity, but gaze upon the fount of every blessing. Jesus commands the man to stand up, to take up his mat and walk, and he does. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not advocating a sort of name-it-and-claim-it spirituality. I think the church actually has done a lot of damage to people with, with such a promise. If you just believe it enough, you will receive it. Uh, the, the emphasis there is on the strength of your belief. i got to tell you, if I go down to the Buckman Bridge and I believe I can fly and I jump off and I flap my wings as hard as I can, I'm going to get wet. Because the point is not the strength of my belief, the point is the object of my belief. Even then, the issues of identity, if you got the object right, which is Jesus Christ, the issues of identity, are, it's not just a light switch that you can uh, turn on and off. If your identity is wrapped up in that thing, it may be that you need to come back to this passage over and over again. The gaze upon Jesus. Maybe it's more concrete for you. I mean, there's lots of folks in our church and even here today that have mobility issues. And this is not a passage that says God wants you to walk. Though I will say I'll be glad to pray with you about that. In fact, we'll have some folks back here 
uh, and they'll come down the steps if you need them to, uh, to pray to that end. But walking, in fact, may be the, the pool that we're gazing in. See, the opportunity here isn't to, to be made physically well, but to lift our eyes on whatever we're gazing at to save us and lift our eyes to Jesus. Again and again, looking to Jesus. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it again and again and again. I said earlier that it is important that this happens on the Sabbath, right? Where he says, take up your mat, because you may be aware that they were not allowed to carry their mats on the Sabbath. In fact, they weren't allowed to do any work. And carrying your mat was considered work. And in fact, if you were to read a little further in the passage, you would see that he gets in trouble with the Pharisees. Hey, you can't carry your mat. It's the Sabbath. Nowhere in Scripture does it say don't carry your mat on the Sabbath. It just says don't work. You should rest on the Sabbath. But they had come up with all these rules around uh, what keeping the Sabbath was like. And Jesus is not simply offering the man the ability to walk, but the ability to come out from under the oppression of the law. It says, if you will just do this, this, and this, if you will just check off these boxes, if you will make sure that you don't do X, Y, and Z, then you will have favor with God. That is religion. But it is not relationship. Religion is good so far as it goes. But it is not the end. It is the means to the end. The end is the relationship. And Jesus, by offering him the ability to walk and the command to carry his mat on the Sabbath is saying that he is not just giving him freedom from paralysis, but he is offering him the true Sabbath rest, which is a, a relationship with Jesus himself. The only thing that will make us whole. I will be enough. I will be made whole if I cast my eyes upon Jesus, the true Sabbath rest. The gospel is not I should wait and wait for a spiritual experience to happen to me if I happen to be lucky enough to have that. The gospel is not uh, get to your chosen pool fast enough. The gospel is come all who are thirsty. Come buy without price. Come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The gospel is invitation. See, Jesus has done all that is necessary to give us the favor of God through His own death and resurrection. Lift your gaze to Him. He is the living water. Do you want to be healed? This passage demonstrates that the only thing that we need to give Christ is our need. The only thing we need to give Christ is our need. The man doesn't puff up and say, do I want to be healed? I don't have anything I want to be healed. I need to be healed of. Who are you to say that I need to be healed? He's honest at least about his condition. He does need. And that's what he gives to Christ. There is no payment. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Amen.